like I'll just tell you every now and then there are sermons that I just feel like I don't know that I should preach this Um, so let me read it for you and I'll explain what's going on here so let me just read our our passage this is Philippians 4 uh, verse 10 Paul says I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me now you were indeed concerned for me but you had no opportunity not that I'm speaking of being in need For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be, and here's what we're going to talk about tonight, I've learned to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Contentment. Not my favorite sermon topic. Um, I honestly, I'll just tell you right off the top, I don't tend to be a very contented person. I struggle with that. It's been a really rough week. Writing sermons that you struggle with are just always so much fun. Um, Next week's going to be better, though, because we're going to move on. Uh, But let me pray for us, and and we'll dive in here. Father God, I thank you for bringing us here tonight. I thank you that uh, this is your word, that this came from you. It was inspired by you. Uh, it reveals you. Uh, it, is, uh, it, it, it is delivered to our hearts by you, by your spirit. And I thank you that it's, it's not the work of man, but it's your work. And so I pray now, as scripture says, that you'd open the eyes of our heart, that, that we can hear your word, that, that we'll take it to heart, and that you will grow us this evening because of the power of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. So contentment. So we're going to dive right in tonight. We're just going to rip the band-aid right off the wound. Uh, Point one in your notes tonight. Contentment isn't normal. So uh, this week as I was working on the sermon, I just, I kept having this thought, like, this is so tough, this is so hard. And, and um, this morning after both services, I had a bunch of people coming up going, oh yeah, this is a really uh, tough sermon for me as well. And if you're here tonight and you're like, oh, you're just a naturally contented person and you don't struggle with some of this, then you, what you need to know is you're not normal, all right? Because normal people struggle with contentment. In fact, I, I did some research this week kind of wondering how normal is it that people would struggle with contentment. I want to read you a couple of paragraphs from some articles I came across. Uh, One is from the uh, online um, blog Quartz, written by uh, Ruth Whitman, and this is just a piece of what she says. Uh, she's, uh, She's British, and she says, as a Brit living in the United States, the sheer backbreaking intensity of the American approach to finding happiness can sometimes feel overwhelming to me. People in America spend more time, more emotional energy, and more money in the quest for contentment than any other nation on the earth. The systematic packaging and selling of happiness, in fact, is an industry in the U.S. estimated to be worth more than $10 billion. And I remember reading that thinking, could could that be true? Is she exaggerating the numbers that $10 billion are spent on us finding happiness? And in fact, she is wrong. She doesn't even come close to the real figures. Time had an article a few months ago called The Happiness of Pursuit. Let me read you a couple paragraphs from that. As Americans, we spent $118 billion last year, $118 billion on traveling abroad for pleasure. 
We spend close to $25 billion per year to attend sporting events, uh, nearly $11 billion a year on movie tickets. We buy ourselves annually $140 billion worth of recreational equipment and $200 billion of electronics. I couldn't even fit all the zeros on the screen, so I didn't try. Let's just say it's a lot of money. The writer goes on, despite all of the effort and money that they are pumping into the endeavor, Americans consistently rank as some of the least happy people in the developed world. One recent survey even placed the day-to-day happiness of the American people, get this, two places behind the citizens of Rwanda. What's more, according to the World Health Organization, Americans are far and away the most anxious people on the planet, with nearly a third of people in this country likely to suffer from an anxiety disorder in their lifetime. So what is going wrong? In an article in the Seattle Times a few months ago, we read this. Through the widest lens of history, America since the 1980s looks like the most golden of golden ages. The peace and prosperity of this era is unparalleled compared to the rest of the world and the history of our species. Americans became healthier, better fed, longer lived, safer, sent fewer young people off to war, and forged one of humankind's greatest technological revolutions. But social science shows that Americans on the whole have found it harder to be content during these prosperous years than in any other time. The gap between our optimistic expectations, which which are huge, and the reality that a significant portion of our population is now cranky and dissatisfied may be what has spawned the vast happiness industry. We tap that industry in a lot of ways. We do it with pills, We do it with food to improve our mood. We do it with self-improvement products and services, including books, audiobooks, seminars. Self-improvement is a $10 billion a year industry. We do it through borrowed wisdom. There are 5,000 motivational speakers in the U.S. right now earning a collective $1 billion a year. The pursuit of contentment, once an ideal, has become a big business, but not an especially effective one. So about a month ago... uh, it was uh, early on, I think Sunday morning, it was our snow uh, Sunday when we, when we canceled services. And I was out driving around the community in the morning just checking out the roads. And uh, it was pretty early, and I, so I was, I was headed home. And I was, I was driving down uh, E Street here, uh, Evergreen Highway, and got to the intersection at 32nd. So if you're familiar with that, Safeway's right there. And uh, You know, people kind of just, they really rocket through that intersection, especially when they're coming from um, the south and going over the railroad tracks and coming in. So it's always good, you know, to, to be careful there. And so I, I pull up, and the, and the light is red, um, heading eastbound, and there's one car in front of me. Pretty typical, so we're, we're waiting there. But it's early in the morning, there's snow everywhere, and there's not particularly much traffic, so we're, we're kind of waiting there. And, and pretty soon I notice the guy in front of me in a car, he starts pulling out into the intersection. And I look up and I see the light's red. And that's just not an intersection you want to drive dead red through, you know? So, I, so I, I don't, I've never done this before, but just instinctively, I honked my horn. And when I honked my horn, he stopped. So he's probably about this, just about this far out into the intersection, and he stopped. And I thought, oh, you know, I, I hate honking my horn, but I felt okay about it. And so about probably 15 seconds go by, and he starts moving again. Now I'm watching this guy, and it's, it's still a red light. And he's pulling out into the intersection, and now he's about half a car into the intersection, and I honk my horn again, because now it's just a game, right? So honk my horn again, and he stops, and now he's stopped there, and he waits there for about 15, 20 seconds, and then he starts going again, and the light's still red. So I wait until he's 
out. He's entirely in the intersection. And I honk my horn one more time to see what he'll do. And he stops. So now he's stopped entirely in the intersection, blocking traffic in every direction, just sitting there not knowing what to do. It was so much fun. And then finally the light turned green and he drove on. But this is what I kept thinking. Like, so I know that we don't stop at stop signs anymore. I'm like over that, right? Nobody stops at stop signs. We just roll right through them. But I thought we still stopped at red lights. Like I thought that was still a thing. And so all I could imagine was if this guy can't wait two minutes, right? Say it was two minutes. If he can't wait two minutes, for a red light to turn green. It's part of a social contract we have, by the way. I'll stop at a red light so you're safe to drive through when it's green, right? This is kind of how we live in community with one another. But if, but if someone is so busy that they can't even stop for two minutes for their emergency, whatever it is, I'm just thinking, can you imagine what the rest of their life must be like? Just frantic all the time, going through all the red lights, if you will, of, of their life. And, and yet, This is normal because contentment for us is just not normal. So what is contentment, if we're going to talk about it tonight? Well, I turned to the dictionary, and um, Webster defined it this way. thought they did a perfect job. (laughs) Uh, It's feeling or showing satisfaction with one's possessions, status, or situation. It's about circumstances. It's about your situation, right? What is biblical contentment? I've got this in your notes. I defined it this way. It is a conviction. So that's a little different. A conviction that Christ's power, purpose, and provision, I'll start with P, thank you, uh, is sufficient for every circumstance. What's different? Well, here contentment is based in a person, not in your circumstances. Now, to be content, and I just need to make this clear, this morning uh, I had several conversations with people who are kind of intense. And so, you know, they were kind of coming up and, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to work this out. Let me just make this clear. To be content doesn't mean you're lazy. To be content doesn't mean you have no ambition in life. The Bible says that we are to be hard workers. The Bible says that we are to go ahead and make plans for our future as we seek God. The Bible says we are to have ambition in life and passions in life. We're to make the most of our God-given opportunities to be the best students we can be, to be the best workers that we can be. We're to make the most of the days. We're to leverage the time that we're given. To be content doesn't mean you're lazy and, and, and you have no ambition. Contentment is about being at peace inside regardless of what's going on outside. Regardless of the ups, regardless of the downs of life that happened to us, the circumstances, regardless of the things that happened to us that we can't change or that we shouldn't change. And that's the context of this passage. If you've been here as we've been going through Philippians, you'll know it was written by a guy named Paul. Paul wrote it from prison. He can't, he can't get out of prison on his own. So he's stuck there. And, and here's where we pick up the passage tonight. In verse 10, he says, Now I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. He's writing to the Philippians. That now at length, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So let's just fill in a little background here. It was probably about 11 years earlier that Paul had traveled uh, to Europe, that he had gone to Philippi, and that he uh, began to preach the gospel. And while he was there, uh, he led some people to Christ, um, he planted the church, he built up some leaders, and then he moved on. And he began to go to more cities and share the gospel there and to plant more churches. And as he traveled, and we'll talk about this next week, but as he traveled from city to city, the Philippians 
Christians kept supporting him, even though he wasn't there anymore, even though there was nothing in it for them. They kept sending him money and sending him supplies as he traveled around. But at some point, apparently, they didn't have the opportunity to support him. And so, so it stopped. And we don't know why. It could have been just the sheer distance. It could have been that there was an economic crash, a downturn in Philippi shortly after he left. Uh, it could have been that they didn't know what he needed or they didn't know how to locate him. But now Paul is in a prison cell. He's not going anywhere. And they find out what's going on. Now, prisoners in the Roman system, very different from what it's like to be in a prison today in the U.S. Because you are dependent on outside support for uh, your food and your clothing and your bedding and your medical supplies. You needed people from outside to bring money, say, bring a bed, a mattress, you know, food, all that kind of stuff. So the church in Philippi finds out that Paul is in prison and they're concerned. So they take a, they take a love offering, right? Isn't that what we call it? And they passed around the house and they said, you know, we're going to send this to Paul. Remember Paul? He planted this church. And so they collect a bunch of money and they give it to a, a guy named Epaphroditus and he takes it to Paul, and then Paul writes a letter in response, and Paphroditus takes it back, and 2,000 years later, right, we're still learning from this situation. But imagine Paul's in prison, he's chained to a guard, uh, meager provisions, he can't, he can't leave, he can't go to churches for worship services, he can't go out and share the gospel or fellowship, and suddenly the door opens and there's Epaphroditus. And he walks in, and he's just, you know, he just went to Costco, and so he's got tons of food for him and some snacks and a new pillow and, and bedding. But more than that, Paul says he had somebody to fellowship with. He had somebody to talk about Jesus with. And, and Paul says that he rejoiced in the Lord greatly. I love the fact that Paul's not panicked, that he's not telling Epaphroditus, I need more. He's not trying to manipulate him and, and the church to give him more. He's not trying to, you know, escape at any cost. Why isn't Paul panicked? Well, because Paul's different. Paul's different than most people, and the difference for Paul is this, that Paul had learned that contentment is something that you learn. It's not something that you're born with. Uh, in verse 11, he says this. Paul says, not that I'm speaking um, out of being in need, for I have learned. That's the key point. Paul says, I'm a student. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be What? Content. Let's try that again. To be content. All right. So, see, human nature, the human nature in us tends to seek contentment in things like wealth, in things like control. I hear this a lot of times. You know, I could relax if I was just in control. You ever felt like that? The problem is people just won't do what I say. Or sometimes we find it in status or, or independence is a big one. And I hear this a lot. If I could just make enough money, then I wouldn't have to depend on my boss or depend on my job. And I could just make decisions I want the way I want to do it. And so many of us search for contentment in that way. And, and beyond the fact that it's human nature to seek contentment in these places where contentment does not exist, there are entire businesses and industries that are spending millions every year to keep you as discontented as possible. They don't want you to be content with your house, right? You live in that house, right? What kind of countertops are those? How can you live with that? You know, like that's your square footage. They don't want you to be content with your TV. How can you even see it, right? 50 inches. It's not, you know, it, what's wrong with that? They don't want you to be content with your car. I mean, look at your car, man. That was like a couple years ago. They don't want you to be content with your clothes. You know, that's so last season. This is last season for sure, right? Like they don't want you to be, uh, you know, you went to where on vacation? 
Right? That's so weak, man. Don't you know, you, could, you should leave the country. They don't want you to be satisfied with your body anymore. There's all sorts of stuff you could do. You could, you know, you could get your hair back, all that kind of stuff, your countertops, your tech, right? They don't want you to be satisfied. They want you to be discontented. Paul says this, I have learned, right? Didn't come naturally, I learned it. Contentment is learned, and if it's learned, then we know there are a few things that go with that. It's learned over time, right? It, it's learned by degrees. It, it's learned through various situations. I had a conversation this week with a, a, another pastor in another church and just, just really struggling with something. He's a lot younger than me and struggling with something in his church. And I, I remember sitting across the table from him and telling, and he's like, what do I do? What do I do? And I, I just told him, I said, man, just relax. I said, when you get as old as I am, you learn some things aren't worth worrying about. They're just not worth it. It'll be fine. Just trust God. Just let it go. Take, from, take it from someone who's been there and worried about it and learned the hard way. It's not, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Some things you could just, just let it go. This is Paul. He learned over time. He learned by degrees. He learned through various situations. In fact, he lists in several passages some of the ways that he learned contentment. And they are not the ways that you might expect. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says, here, let me tell you about a few ways that I learned contentment. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. 40 lashes was considered death. So he said, yeah, five times they gave me 40 lashes minus one, so I didn't quite die, right? It's mostly dead. Uh, it says, three times I was beaten with rods. One time I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. He says, on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. You, you kind of get the idea. He's at danger, right? Danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil, in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger, in thirst, often without food, in cold, in, in exposure. What did all these things teach him? They taught him that he has a God who is sovereign. They taught him that he has a God who is good. And Paul started to learn. You know, he would get through difficult situations. He'd be there and think, why does this feel, you know, this feels familiar? Oh yeah, the situation is different, but I've been here before. I have a God who's sovereign. I have a God who's good. It wasn't just hard times. There were undoubtedly some great times for Paul as well. You know, probably you can just imagine, like, maybe he remembers a fondness going to Philippi. Maybe he remembers the day that some people responded to the gospel. He probably remembers the day he baptized them, how awesome that was. And the first worship gathering, like the first meeting of the church in Philippi as they sang to the Lord. And I, I would imagine, I was thinking this week, it must have been so cool for Paul because they didn't have a New Testament and Gospels yet. So Paul had received the Gospel. Paul was, he would, you know, preach on the weekend and he would say, hey, have you heard the story about Jesus walking on water? And they would be like, what? what? Jesus walked on water? And Paul would be like, oh, yeah, let me tell you about that. Like Paul got to tell people stories about Jesus that they'd never heard before. That was probably so much fun for him and having meals together and praying and seeing lives changed and, and families brought back together. All of these things, the hard stuff and the good stuff, all of it taught Paul that he could trust God. All of it taught Paul that he could be content. Verse 12. I know how to be brought low. That, that word means to be humbled. So he says, I know what it's like to have circumstances that humble you. Yeah. And I know how, how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned. I've learned the secret. Here you go. The secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance 
and need. Paul says, I've learned something. What have I learned? I've learned a secret. I've learned a secret that comes through experience, through the experience of walking with Christ day after day after day. You learn something. What did he learn? How to have a little and be content. How to have a lot and be content. In fact, research reveals, by the way, that uh, you probably need more help to be content when you're rich than when you're not. Because studies continue to show that people who have more wealth tend to be less contented than people who have less. So no matter who you are, you still need that help. You still need that secret. True contentment is a mystery to people outside of Christ. And Paul had come to know the secret of contentment over a period of time. It took a while. It was part of his spiritual growth, part of his sanctification. And what is this big secret that Paul discovered? Well, the secret was this, that contentment is Christ-dependent. Christ-dependent. Again, verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, that word content there, if you're into the Greek, is a very interesting word. This is the only place in the entire New Testament that this word appears. It was a word that was used by the Stoics of, of Paul's day. And the Stoics had this mindset that the, the ultimate, um, if you will, destination for an individual would be that they would be completely uh, self-contained, that they would be somebody who was, who was self-sufficient, that in themselves they had everything they needed. They didn't need a job because they had enough money. They didn't need approval from anyone else because they felt good about themselves. They didn't need a house to live in. They didn't need food for anyone. They were completely self-sufficient. And for the Stoic, this was the ultimate destination to be completely self-sufficient. And they believed that this was where contentment came from, when you were completely self-sufficient. Paul comes along and takes the word and he does this often in Scripture. He takes a word and he redefines it. He hijacks the word, if you will. And Paul redefines what it means to be content from being self-sufficient to being Christ-sufficient. In verse 12, he tells us this, I have learned the secret of facing plenty. I love that, like facing plenty, like it's hard. Right? Like it's hard to have a lot and be content. And, and hunger of abundance and need. And then he says this, and these are probably familiar words to you. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Right? Like, re let's read that together, that, that sentence right there. Ready? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, Paul is not content because he is independent. Paul is content because he is completely, totally dependent upon Christ. And again, we could talk so much about Christ, but there are two things that I keep thinking about as I was working on the sermon this week, two things in particular, that he is sovereign and that he is good. And when you put those together, you have a pretty great situation. When we say he is sovereign, what we mean is that, that God is all-powerful, that nothing can frustrate his will, that he accomplishes everything he sets out to accomplish, and, and as being sovereign, and, and when you put it with the fact that he is good, meaning that he will always do what is good and always do what is good for us. Paul says, when I put those two things together, I can be content. And then he says this. He says, I can do all things through him, all things through him who strengthens me. One of the most beloved and frequently quoted verses in all of Scripture People, you know, tape it, to, they write it down and tape it to their mirror in the morning 
You know, so as they're getting ready to go to work, I can do all things. I can have a jerk for a boss, and I can, you know, persevere. I can go to school today, and God can give me the power to do that. We quote it before a workout, right? Like, God, give me the ability today to run a five-minute mile uh, in my age, right? Or, or maybe you're on a diet, and so you put, it on the, you put it on the refrigerator, right? I could do all things. Or maybe you're a young man, you're going to ask a girl on a date who's way out of your league, right? So you're like, I can do it. I can do all things. And, you know, or maybe you're going to buy something you can't afford, right? So you're like, I can do this. I, I can get an A. I can get a promotion. It's not only the, one of the most quoted and beloved verses, it's also easily one of the most misused of all scripture it, that we can find. In fact, one of my favorite memes is this one. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context, right? There you go. Like that, because that's exactly, that's exactly what we do with this. Here's the problem. We rip it out of its context and we use it to say, basically, I can do anything I decide to do through the power of Christ. Anything I decide to do. As one writer said, right, this is a stick and God is a pinata. So we got the, the, the stick of scripture, and all we have to do is whack God with this verse, and candy comes flowing out from God, and you'll have wealth, and you'll have health, your hair will grow back, your dreams will come true, your, you'll, you'll go home tonight, and your TV will be bigger, and high definition, your vehicle will be better when you go out in the parking lot, and you'll be, you'll be out of debt. Now, when Paul says, I can do all things, all things here is controlled, if you will, we would say it's controlled by the context. This is so important. It is defined by the context that we find it in. So what's the context? Well, it's written by a man who's in jail, and he can't get out. So what does that mean? What Paul's saying is this, right? I can do all things. I, I could be financially wealthy, or I could be poor. I could be healthy, or I could be sick. I could go out and proclaim the gospel to people who embrace it. I could proclaim it to people who persecute me for it. I can be content when I'm free. I can be content when I'm in prison. But right now, Paul says, I'm in prison. Right now, Paul is saying, I don't know if I'll ever get out. Right now, Paul is saying, I might die here. But I'm still content. And in fact, scholars tell us that a, a, a better translation here of the, of the word through would actually be the word in. It has a, a better concept of what's happening in the Greek. So we would read it this way. I can do all things in him, in him who strengthens me. So what does that mean? Well, it's actually a very significant phrase because the concept of being in Christ is something that Paul brings up again and again in this letter. What does it mean to be in him? What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, Part of what it means is that you've placed your faith in him. You've put your trust in him. And when you put your trust in Christ, now you belong to him. You, it's like he, if you will, he, he takes you out of the world and he puts you in him. That's basically what the word holy means. We're called saints. We're, we're called holy. To be holy means you've been set aside for an uncommon purpose. You now belong in Christ. It means he has saved you. It, it means you are no longer your own. You belong to him. It, it means that he is your Lord. If he is your Lord, then he's calling the shots. He, he's setting the agenda. If you are in Christ, this means that, that you can be confident that you will be divinely strengthened to do anything God calls you to do. You can be confident that he will strengthen you to do anything and everything that he calls you to do. But it does not mean, it does not mean that you can do anything that you want by claiming Christ. 
It doesn't mean that you can get an A on a test you didn't prepare for. It doesn't mean that you can win at a sport that you didn't practice for. It doesn't mean that you can get a paycheck that you didn't work for. He empowers us to do all things that he calls us to do. And so what this means is we need to know Christ. We need to know him intimately to know what he would, he would call us to do. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. He said, the secret of, of the power that Paul's talking about here is to discover and to learn from the New Testament what is possible for us in Christ. <laughs> so instead of telling God what, what we want him to do, we go to his word so he tells us what he does in this world. What I have to do is to go to Christ. Imagine that, right? I must spend time with him. I must meditate upon him. I must get to know him. This is Paul's ambition. He says that I might know him. I must maintain my contact and communion with Christ, and I must concentrate on knowing him. And as we get to know him, then it allows him to to set our agenda, not the other way around. This is why in February and and March we've been encouraging everyone in our church to read the Gospel of John and to read one other Gospel. And if you're behind, let me just encourage you. You can still do that. You've got most of this month in front of you. John's a short Gospel. You can get it done. Why do we encourage you to do this? Because it's about getting to know Christ. See, the Bible never says anywhere, anywhere, I can do whatever I want to do through God. It never says that. What it says is, I can do everything Everything that God calls me to do. And this brings us to our our last point tonight. And that is that contentment, in many ways, is a choice that you and I can make. In 2 Corinthians, Paul tells a story. Uh, He says that he had a vision, if you've read that passage. He has a vision, he's he's caught up into some level of heaven, and he sees some things that are so amazing that he can't even put them into words. And, and then the vision is done, and, and apparently um, Paul was concerned, maybe that God was concerned, that he might become a little proud because of what he had seen. And so God gave him what he calls a, he called it a, a thorn in the flesh. Uh, we don't really know what the thorn in the flesh was. It was some, some kind of difficult situation in Paul's life to keep him humble. And some scholars say it was actually a demon. Some say it was a person who was just, you know, really bothersome. Some say it was an illness or migraines or uh, eyesight problems. I, I read one commentator who said it was bad breath. I, I don't know. One said it was flatulence. I'm not sure about any of those things. But, but apparently Paul prays to the Lord to, to change his situation. And God didn't take it away. So he prayed a second time to take it away, and God didn't take it away. And he prayed a third time to take it away, and God didn't take it away. And we pick up the story here as Paul recounts it in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Paul says, but God said to him, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm, I'm content. See that? I'm content with weaknesses. I'm content with insult. How many of us can say that? Yeah, I'm, I'm content when I get insulted. <laughs> I'm content when I'm weak. He says, I'm content in hardship. I'm content in persecution. I'm content in calamities. For when I am weak, notice he says, when I am weak, then God is, then he is what? 
strong because so often when we feel strong, we don't, we don't cast ourselves at, at, at the you know, feet of God. We don't, we don't beg God for his involvement in his leadership. Oftentimes when we feel strong, we don't go to God. Paul says, it's actually good for me that I feel weak. It's actually good for me that I'm in difficult circumstances because it reminds me how Christ-sufficient I am. It reminds me. And I, and I cast myself at the feet of, of Christ. So the biblical approach to, to difficult circumstances, which we all face at times, is that when you find yourself in those situations, we should always certainly pray about it. Scripture encourages us to go to God and to pray about our circumstances. We should always look at, at Scripture for wisdom. What does Scripture teach us about, about situations we're in? We should get advice from godly people. Uh, and if God opens a door out of our situation and leads you, then you should get out. But on the other hand, it, while you're in difficult circumstances, you can always choose, even in the midst of it, to be content. Right? How many of us say, well, when I'm out, I'll be content. When it's over, I'll be content. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about right now. He's talking about whatever hard situation we're in right now. It's, it's possible for us to do this because Jesus, Jesus not only has the power to change our circumstances, he has the power to give us contentment in our circumstances. In Romans 8, 28, Paul tells us this, and we know that for those who, who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So we always have the choice to trust our God who is sovereign and our God who is good, right? To say, God, I, I believe that you are in charge. I believe that you are all-powerful. I believe that you are sovereign, and I believe that you are good and that you're always going to fulfill this promise. You're always going to do what's good for me. Always. So we always have the opportunity to make that choice, even in the midst of difficult times. As I was working on the sermon this week, I, I, I kept thinking back uh, to a story that happened, and, and many of you know about this, but uh, so this was years ago now, but we, uh, we had two children at the time. Um, our oldest was uh, 21 months old, and then we had a newborn, and it was during that time that um, our oldest, at Chris, uh, became very, very ill, uh, we spent a, a lot of time, I don't know if that's me, we spent a lot of time at, um, at Dornbecker's Hospital, and, um, you okay back there? <laughs> awesome. And um, trying to figure out what was going on uh, with our son. And on several occasions, we found ourselves sitting at a great big table with uh, lots of doctors in uh, white lab coats, explaining to us that um, our son had, uh, was experiencing basically kidney failure, and uh, there was no known cure, and that we would just have to try uh, some different things. And so over the course of years, we began to try a treatment and it didn't work in another treatment, and it didn't work in another treatment. And we sat down with the doctors who said, you know, basically, we can't tell you if he's going to live a month, if he's going to live a year, if he's going to live a decade. We can't tell you. We, we, we don't know. And during that time, I also had the opportunity to, to talk so, to some parents who had young children with the same disease. And uh, I talked to some of them whose kids were in their 20s and 30s and had survived. But I also talked to some other parents whose, whose children had died at the age of two, at the age of three. And I can remember in the midst of all this because uh, I, I guess as a father, uh, I would only settle for one thing. 
And that was that they would find a cure for my son, for his disease. It was the only thing that I was looking for at the time. And I remember um, we were months into it, uh, sitting down with his doctor one day who was telling me, this is, this is not something that we're going to find a cure for right away. It's something that you're going to have to live with for a while. You're just going to have to figure this out. And so I remember one time in prayer thinking about this, and I had this thought, if, if this makes sense to you. I remember thinking, I, I don't know if he's going to live a month or a decade or if he's going to outlive me. But I remember thinking, if, if, if he should outlive me, if God should bless us that way, I would hate years from now to look back and realize that I had missed all the days God gave me with my son because I was so focused on the days I might not get. Does that make sense? So focused on what I might not get. And I remember thinking, what if he, what if he doesn't survive? What if he, what if he passes away at a young age? And I remember thinking at the time, well, I don't think it would change anything. It would be a tragedy, wouldn't it, to look back and go, well, we had him for a short time, but I didn't enjoy it. I wasn't content because I was so focused on what I wouldn't get. I didn't enjoy what I did have. And God says there is a better way. A better way is to trust Him. It's to trust His sovereignty. It's to trust His goodness. It's to trust. And, and this, is, this is the choice we have. We always have the trust of the choice. We always have the choice to trust God's sovereignty. We always have the choice to trust His goodness and, and to experience the contentment that comes as a result of trusting Him. So my question for you as we close today is this. Where do you need to do that? Is there something going on in your life right now? And it's just, it's tough to trust him. It's tough to be content. But you have the choice. Where do you need to do that? I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray for us. And then uh, we're gonna just, um, we're going to worship the Lord for a couple more minutes. And just, we're gonna sing about how good he is to us. Amen? Let me pray for us.